Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. I will be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Bold and arrogant they are, not afraid to heap abuse on celestial things. Even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed like animals. They too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blameless, reveling in their pleasures while the feast with you. With your eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are ex experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are enlarged in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed unto them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that has been washed returns to the wallowing mud. This is the word of the Lord. Um, and praise team. Good morning. As Nick said, it is good to be with you. Uh, what a week we have been through. A contentious week. If you're anything like me, uh, over the last few weeks and months, um, I've been amazed by friends and, and family, as I know they have been amazed by me as well. And you know, we we hear each other's convictions, and we wonder how in the world can they believe that, right? And they, no doubt, think the same thing about us. And so I want to, this morning, um, after having come through such a contentious week, I want to take just a couple of minutes to continue the work that Nick and Allison and the team have already begun. And I want us to fix our eyes on Christ Jesus. Listen to Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, S-O-N, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, as you have heard our praises being sung this morning, as you've received our worship through song, Father, I pray that it is our heart's desire that we continue worshiping now by turning to your word and hearing your word preached. Father, I pray that this word preached would do a work in all of us, myself included. Father, move through your word. Help us to see and understand what it is you would have us to see and understand. Father, for those who after the events of this week find themselves rejoicing, I pray that they would not rejoice as those who don't have a king and a savior. And for those among us who find ourselves in despair, Father, I pray that we would not despair as if we don't have a king or a savior. It's my hope that those who are rejoicing, if not in Christ, would turn to Christ. And for those despairing, if not in Christ, would turn to Christ. We see the warnings throughout your word that earthly leaders come and go, but King Jesus is forever. And it's at his name that every knee will bow. So, Father, help us to hear these warnings from Scripture Help us to repent of our sin and turn to Christ. Help us to believe in him alone and nothing else for our salvation. Father, we do pray this morning for those who can't be here with us, for those who are sick, especially when to lift up Robert Dunlop, Father, and pray that you would 
protect him. Father, we pray that you would take this pneumonia away from him and heal his body for Claude. Father, we pray that you would be with her as Robert is in the hospital. And pray, Father, that you would heal them. Father, there are so many in our congregation who are sick and in need, and you know each and every one. You know each and every situation, and it's our humble prayer that you touch their bodies and heal them. I pray that you would bring them back with us to worship soon and very soon. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand, and hearts to do your will. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. The medium is the message. The medium is the message. That's a phrase made famous by a communications expert named Marshall McLuhan. His point was that the method or means of communication is as important, if not more important, than the message being delivered. McLuhan gives an example of what he means by comparing the content of communication as a juicy piece of meat carried by a burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. A juicy piece of meat carried by a burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. So the burglar is the medium. And so the burglar is the message, right? And we see this around us in our day and age with all of the distractions that are afoot. So if the way something is communicated is as important as the meaning or content of the message being communicated, this means the character of the communicator must be examined as closely as the meaning or content of his or her message. Communication is intensely personal. Think back 25 to 30 years ago. My guess is you trusted one of three news anchors to bring you up to speed on everything that had happened around the U.S. or the world in that particular day. For one reason or another, you relied on Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, or Dan Rather to tell you what you needed to know. You trusted them. They were polished, right? They were well-spoken. They seemed trustworthy. But what happens when those that we trust are caught up in scandal? Just last month, the uh, network C-SPAN placed one of its hosts on leave after he lied about his Twitter account being hacked. Why would C-SPAN do this? Because the medium is the message. If you can't trust the communicator, you'll have a hard time believing his message. The Apostle Peter understood the potential devastation that could come from unrighteous messengers. And he spends the entirety of what we consider to be chapter 2 in this letter in our Bibles to shining the spotlight on false teachers. We heard this a couple of weeks ago, but listen once more to Peter's warning for those he was instructing to be on the lookout for. Look at verse 1, again, of 2 Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, 
even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So I want Peter's words from verses 1 to 3 to to land on you, to sit on you, to weigh on you. He gives three reasons why the church should watch out for false teachers. Reason number one, the church must watch out for and guard against false teachers. False teachers secretly introduce destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. Back when I was in seminary, my fellow students and I would regularly hear from our professors exhorting us to not be heresy hunters. That's good wisdom because we want to be as charitable as possible. We don't want to label everyone who disagrees with us as a heretic. However, Peter, he makes sure the readers of his letter understand that heretics are real. They were among the church and that their tactics were deceitful. It's the same in our day. Churches just like ours all across the country are gobbling up worldly ideologies that are being taught under the guise of Christianity. We should be able to identify them and flatly reject these false teachings as heresy. Reason number two, the church must watch out for and guard against false teachers. Look at verse two. Peter warns that many will follow the depraved conduct of the false teachers. Some translations render depraved conduct as sensuality or licentiousness. The sense is sinful abandon, indulgence in sensual pleasure, unrestrained by convention or morality. False teaching goes hand in hand with sexual perversion and greed. Friends, what you must understand about Satan is that from the very beginning, his goal was to upset God's design for sexuality. In his first interaction with humans, what God-designed institution does Satan target? He goes after the God-given roles in marriage. He approaches the woman rather than the man, undermining God's design for headship. Not only that, in Romans chapter 1, Paul shows what happens when the truth is suppressed. Sexual perversion thrives. So it's no wonder then that Peter teaches many will follow the depraved sensuality of the false teachers. And reason number three, the church must watch out for and guard against false teachers. These greedy false teachers will exploit the church with fabricated stories. I remember a video clip going around a few years ago with two well-known televangelists talking about why they needed a private jet for their ministries. The reason from their lips, because they couldn't be in a long tube, in other words, the fuselage, with a bunch of demons— Pastors don't need Gulf Streams. Okay, so you, you've got to ask yourself the question, why would Peter devote over a third of this letter to the topic of false teachers? You might also wonder why we would give two Sundays and two ter- sermons to the topic of false teachers. Here's the reason. There was a clear and present danger for Peter's first century audience, and the threat is just as real for us today. 
should be noted that teaching against false teachers is the rule and not the exception in the New Testament. It's everywhere from the Gospels to Revelation. Just as Satan challenged the Word of God within the first three chapters of Genesis, the false prophets and false teachers challenged the Word of God throughout the rest of the Bible. So what happens when worldly ideologies creep into the church at the hands of false teachers? Paul in 2 Timothy 4.3, he tells us, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We hear Paul say, for the time will come, and, and we think, surely not in our day. But friends, Paul's point to young Timothy was not that the church would have to wait until the 21st century, but that Timothy himself would see it in his day. You can scan church history and see that as long as she has existed, the church has had to put down false teachers and their teaching. So what are some of the things that we are dealing with today? Obviously, there's the prosperity teaching, which includes word of faith, False teaching that we name and claim whatever we want. This includes the false teachers who are bilking their congregations and contributors for tens of millions of dollars for private jets and whatever else their little hearts desire. We're also facing a full-scale assault from the worldly ideologies of Marxism, critical theory, and intersectionality. Radical progressivism is a cancer that has metastasized into the church. Just last year, the world's largest Protestant denomination adopted a resolution at its annual convention that spoke favorably of a Marxist sociological tool known as critical race theory. The church is actively embracing ideologies that are foundationally atheistic in nature. As in Peter's day, the church is under siege. The church is in ages past is being inundated by false teachers. Peter wanted the churches that he was writing to to be able to identify them. And it is of utmost importance that we are able to as well. So my hope for us today is to examine what Peter has to say about the character of these false teachers so that we can be better equipped to mark and reject them. So if you're not there already, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be focusing on verses 10 to 22 this morning as Tom read. Look at the first half of verse 10. Peter says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Peter's just said in verse 9 that the Lord knows how to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. And right here at the beginning of verse 10, in identifying the false teachers, he says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. These false teachers that were bringing harm to the first century church were marked by two things. They were slaves to their corrupt desires and they were prideful. In verses 10b through 13a, Peter will show us the pride of these false teachers as they despise authority. So if you're taking notes, our first point is the pride of the false teachers. The pride of the false teachers. In verses 13b to 19, Peter will show how the false teachers were enslaved by their corrupt desires. 
So our second point will be the enslaving desires of the false teachers. And the last point that we will find, even though these warnings are sprinkled throughout all of these verses, in verses 20 to 22, we will see the culmination of those warnings. And that third final point is the warning for false teachers. All right, so our first point is the pride of the false teachers. And, and again, we will see this in verses 10b to 13a. Look at the second half of verse 10 with me. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Peter's already told us these false teachers despise authority in the first part of verse 10. And now we see their boldness and arrogance in the second half of verse 10. You may be thinking, well, what's wrong with boldness? Shouldn't I want boldness in my leader, in my leaders? Boldness can be a good thing. It can be a great characteristic. But Peter's point is these false teachers are improperly forward. This is a boldness that is out of step with the character of a follower of Christ Jesus. The context proves this because he goes on to say the false teachers were heaping abuse on celestial beings. Well, there's no doubt Peter's original audience knew exactly what he was referring to. We read celestial beings and, and we're left scratching our heads. Like, what in the world are you talking about, Peter? Who are these celestial beings? Commentators are all over the place. They say that they are evil angels, which we'll get to again in just a moment. Others say that uh, they are referring to church leaders or civil authorities. And although there's not complete agreement on who these celestial beings are, it seems clear that there is a clue in the book of Jude. We've already said a couple of times in this series that there's a connection between Jude and 2 Peter. And because of this close connection, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Jude can help us in figuring this out. So flip over to Jude. If you have a hard copy of the Bible, go to Revelation and then flip back one book. In verse 8... Jude says, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So it's clear from verses 8 and 9 that the celestial beings are evil angels. Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil who is what? An evil angel. Now, while we don't understand why or how exactly these false teachers were heaping abuse on these evil angels, what we can discern is that these false teachers are participating in something that even the archangel Michael would not do. 
You have human beings, fallen sinners who are doing something that Michael the archangel would not do. Notice one more time what Jude says. Michael did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Three times in verses 10b through the first part of verse 13, Peter uses the word blaspheme. Peter has told us that these false teachers despise authority, but the specific authority in view here is the angelic realm. In their boldness and arrogance, they blaspheme in matters they do not understand. What would lead them to do this? Pride. Two things we should note. Peter is not saying that we should not judge. In fact, he's, he's making judgments by pointing out who these false teachers are. Scripture commends us to use discernment. And that's Peter's point in this whole chapter. What's in view here is presuming to speak in the place of the Lord. Notice God's holy angels bring judgment. What does the text say? From the Lord. Blaspheming in matters they do not understand. It shows that these false teachers are speaking not from the Lord, but in place of the Lord. Second thing that we should understand is the manner in which they are doing this. These false teachers are guilty of what their true father, Satan, is guilty of, and it's pride. What led to Satan's expulsion from the Lord's presence? Pride. It's no wonder then that when outlining the requirements for an elder in the church, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. False teachers are proud like Satan. Contrast that with the Lord Jesus. We read of Christ Jesus in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The ministry of these false teachers looks nothing like the ministry of Jesus. Peter says they are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. One thing Peter is underscoring here is that false teachers do not exhibit a reverential fear for the Lord and his creation. Case in point, they do not respect the hierarchy in place that angels who are stronger and more powerful are careful to observe. They do not revere the Lord or pay mind to his sovereignty and providential governance. So pride can reveal itself in someone who makes much of themselves. And it's in elevating themselves that, that they reveal disdain for God. So when you're presented with teaching, consider the source. Peter's telling us the character of the teacher matters. And one way we can identify false teachers is from their pride. So do they look more like humble Jesus or prideful Satan? The actions and the words of these false teachers aren't benign. So why will they be paid back with harm? Because their false teaching has done harm. 
So having seen, seen the pride of these false teachers, Peter will now show us the enslaving desires of the false teachers. Look again at the second half of verse 13. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. In 10a, Peter said the false teachers follow the corrupt desires of their flesh. And we can take that defilement that is more narrowly understood as being sexual in nature or more broadly to include their greed. The boldness and arrogance of the false teachers is not only seen in their pride, it's displayed in the lack of restraint that they show for pleasure. Peter shows the false teachers are enslaved to their desires in three ways. So their bellies, their beds, and their bank accounts. If they overindulge in broad daylight, we can only imagine what they're doing in the dark. But it's not so much the time of day that is so astounding as it is the location where these false teachers are overindulging. Peter says, while they feast with you, and, and Jude says the false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. So in church meals that were intended to strengthen the bonds of Christian fellowship and to intensify the participants' sense of union with Christ, these false teachers are using the occasion to satisfy their desires. Peter says the false teachers are blots and blemishes among the believers at these meals routinely held in connection with the Lord's Supper. The seriousness of the false teacher's offense here is understood in Paul's words of Christ's love for his bride in Ephesians 5. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. So these false teachers are blots and blemishes preying on the church of Jesus Christ. The church which he died for to make holy and to present her to himself without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And these opportunistic false teachers have no regard for the body of Christ for which Jesus died. Jesus, the great shepherd, laid down his life for this church while the false teachers revel in their pleasures. And again, as Jude says, they are shepherds feeding themselves. Not only are they feeding their bellies, we're told that their intent was to fill their beds. Peter says in the first half of verse 14, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. And in verse 18, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Instead of promoting, instead of promoting God's ideal of sex being reserved for the marriage of one man and one woman, the false teachers were aggressively engaging in repeated sexual exploits. The false teachers, they reveal one of their many weaknesses in that they don't always go after the strongest of folks. What does it say? They go after the unstable. Other translations have unsteady or weak. The false teachers don't limit their targets to adults. 
Countless children have been taken advantage of in churches around the world at the hands of men and women who led the child to believe that they cared for them spiritually. Convincing the children that they could trust them, the false teachers were predators who did their damage. And unfortunately, an entire industry has had to be built around this very issue. Companies will perform background checks for churches to protect them in their children's and youth ministries from false teachers. And we here at Trinity Church participate in those background churches, uh, um, searches. And so we are happy for you to come and, and serve in our children's and youth ministries. But to protect you and to protect our children, we do perform these background searches to weed out anyone who would intend to do harm to children. The last portion of verse 14 reveals the false teachers were also set on filling their bank accounts. When Peter says they are experts in greed and a cursed brood, the false teachers were guilty of breaking the 10th commandment. They had fine-tuned their covetousness, and we know this because Peter says they are experts some translations go with trained in greed here because the word in Greek gives us our word for gymnasium. Like a champion boxer or world-class basketball player or tour golfer, these false teachers had honed their craft. Like a professional athlete is constantly looking to up their game, making tweaks here and there, the false teachers do the same thing in their greed. Enough is never enough. And right on the heels of this condemnation is yet another reminder that the fate of these false teachers is judgment. Peter's words at the beginning of verse 15, they remind us of Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. Look at verse 15. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. So we're taking back to the Old Testament example of Balaam. Balaam was the diviner who was petitioned by the king of Moab to curse Israel. And as Peter mentions, you'll remember Balaam was the man who was humiliated by his own donkey. Balaam was known for his greed and for luring Israel into sexual sin. These false prophets have followed Balaam who loved the wages of wickedness. And notice with these false prophets, these false teachers, that they're not fighting and killing sin. They're reveling in it. They love it. As with the other evidences of their offenses, each is followed with a promise of judgment. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. One of the most striking observations Peter makes is the absurd feat that these false teachers are attempting to pull off. Look at verse 19. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Christians are to be marked by the truth. We are to love truth, speak truth, advocate for truth, and live for truth. Look at the contrast. 
Only a liar would be so self-deceived to think that they could offer freedom when they themselves are slaves. These liars were telling new Christians that they could do whatever they wanted to do sexually and there would be no ramifications. We saw the same thing in verse 18. Doesn't this sound like the sexual revolution of the 60s? And doesn't this sound like the LGBTQ agenda of today? You can be free to be you. You do whatever you want to do and no harm will come of it. But don't miss what Peter says. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Be careful who you listen to when you're being offered freedom. Only a freed man can make good on the promise to deliver you from bondage. And the question that comes from the end of verse 19 is, what has mastered you? I must ask the question, you must ask the question, what have I been mastered by? If you've been mastered by something, you are a slave to that thing. Paul tells us as much in Romans 6. What then, beginning in verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We've seen the pride of the false teachers. We've seen the enslaving desires of the false teachers. And lastly, we will look at the warning for false teachers. Look once more at verses 20 to 22. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Some have wondered if these final verses are referring to the weak back in verse 18, but Context tells us Peter clearly had the false teachers in mind here. But even knowing that the false teachers are the subject of the end of chapter 2 raises questions. It's in reading passages like this that we become convinced it is possible for someone to lose their salvation. But is it? It appears as though these false teachers have known the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I'm sure many of us can think of friends and family that were at one time very involved in a local church. Not only were they coming to Sunday morning, but they were participating in mission trips and and Bible studies, some of them even serving. They seemingly had a zeal for the Lord, but slowly over time they drifted away never to return. Some of them seem to have escaped the corruption of the world and again seem to have come into a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But using Peter's language, we're again entangled in it, in the corruption of the world and overcome. 
the frightful thing for these false teachers is the judgment that awaits them. They have been front row observers of the goodness of God and have turned their backs on it. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good only to reject this knowledge and experience. Throughout verses 10 to 22, Peter refers to animals. In verses 10 through the first part of 13, the false teachers are again said to be like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. In verse 16, the false teacher is ironically rebuked by an animal. Finally, in verse 22, Peter refers to some attention-grabbing imagery to cement his idea. He tells us the false teachers are like a dog that returns to its vomit and a, a pig that has cleaned itself up but then returns to squalor. We don't know why Peter used these two animals as the closing imagery to warn against the false teachers, but perhaps he remembered Jesus' warning of the danger of associating with dogs and pigs in Matthew 7, 6. It's in this final reference to animals that we understand what Peter is saying. These false teachers have never truly changed or better said, they've never truly been changed. Their nature is the same. True, they, they clean themselves up for a while, but they've not been born again and experienced the nature-changing grace of God in Christ Jesus. Peter speaks of the new birth in his first letter, and we remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Jesus himself told Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Friends, these false teachers did not lose their salvation. They never knew it to begin with. So the New Testament has a lot to say about this, about assurance of salvation, about not being able to lose your salvation. I want you to jot down a few of these references. Look at them later this afternoon. John 6, 39 to 40. John 10, 28. Colossians 3, 3 to 4. And Jude 1. I'll say those one more time. John 6, 39 to 40. John 10, 28. Colossians 3, 3 to 4. And Jude 1. Could have given you a list of a hundred, but those will get you through the afternoon. Friends, the world is awash in godless ideology and false teaching. Unfortunately, it continues to make its way into the church. So we must guard against it. But it's in all of these warnings from Peter that we realize it's not enough just for us to look out. We must regularly look Within. We must ourselves guard against becoming false teachers. It's in the warning at the end of this chapter that we realize the importance of self-examination. Question for all of us is, have I been born again? Have I been given a new nature? Or have I just cleaned myself up for a while, but continue to return to the mud or to feast on my own vomit? Who or what are you trusting to give you freedom? The false teachers trusted themselves, though 
they were prideful, while they should have trusted in Jesus, who was completely humble. The false teachers trusted in themselves, though they were slaves of their desires, while they should have trusted in Jesus, who was perfectly righteous. And the false teachers trusted in themselves despite the continual warnings from Peter and others. While they should have trusted in Jesus, who's already suffered the punishment for the sins of all who will turn to him in repentance and faith. Speaking to Christians, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Only the Lord Jesus can offer freedom. The question is, have you received that freedom from him? Let's pray. Father, we don't like to concentrate on chapters in your word like this because of the weightiness of them. These stern words seem bleak and daunting and filled with images of judgment and punishment. And, and so we tremble when thinking about false teachers and their fate. But Father, as we approach the table of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, it's my prayer that we would take a few moments to examine ourselves and find if there is any error in us. It's my prayer that we would be careful to ask the Holy Spirit to look over us and to reveal anything to us that we need to repent of. We trust that work alone to your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that he would help us to know the things that we need to seek forgiveness for. The beauty of a passage like this is that it shows us the grace and mercy that is available to all who will repent of their sin and believe on Christ Jesus alone for their salvation. As long as we have breath in our lungs, it's not too late to respond to Christ. And so, Father, I do pray if there's anyone here in this room or anyone watching at home or wherever they may be watching from, if this word has landed on them, through your Holy Scripture, you have revealed to them that they are in desperate need of a Savior. It's my humble prayer this morning that they would bow their knee to Christ, repent of their sin, and believe on him for salvation alone. Father, guard us from false teachers Guard us from wicked men and women who are prideful, who are slaves to their own desires, who look nothing like our Savior Christ Jesus, who would 
mislead us with their lies. Give us wisdom. Help us to use your word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might be able to discern error and false teaching. That we might be able to mark it and reject it. And that anything that potentially is a challenge to the gospel would be squarely shut out of our minds. Help us, Father, to do these things. We cannot do them on our own. We need the the saving work of your Son, and we need the guiding work of your Spirit. So we ask these things in Jesus' name, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.